0: Hello, and welcome to Buffy and the Art of Story Season 4. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you love creating stories or just taking them apart to see how they work, you are in the right place. Today we are talking about Season 4, Episode 17 Superstar, where Jonathan is better at everything than anyone else, including Buffy. I am Lisa M. Lilly, novelist and founder of Writing as a Second Career. Com. As to Superstar, we'll talk about beginning a story in media res or in the middle of things, weaving in small moments that build a character or a world, who the protagonist is, Buffy or Jonathan, themes and plots that resonate differently with different audience members, and unintentional messages in fiction that are informed by the larger culture at the time. No spoilers, except at the end to talk about foreshadowing, but I'll give you plenty of warning. Okay, let's dive into the hellmouth. Superstar originally aired on April 4, 2000. It was directed by David Grossman and written by Jane Espenson, and today's episode includes highlights from the commentary by Espenson. The previously on shows Jonathan In high school, when he had a rifle in the clock tower and Buffy saved him, the Faith-Buffy body switch, including sex with Riley and Riley saying I love you to Faith in Buffy's body, and Adam saying he was created to kill and to extinguish life wherever he finds it. Though I already talked about two Angel episodes where Faith crossed over and Buffy was in that second one, Superstar comes before at least that second episode. So Buffy has not yet gone to Los Angeles. We start with opening conflict. That's conflict that is there to draw the audience in, even if it doesn't relate to the main plot, though here I think it does. Buffy is fighting in the graveyard, but it does not seem quite right. Willow has to yell to alert her to a second vampire. And when Willow tosses her a stake, Buffy catches it as if she's afraid she'll miss. And when she does stake one of the vampires, she just holds that stake out in front of her very awkwardly, and the vampire more or less runs into it. In the commentary, Jane Espenson mentioned something I didn't notice, which is that the scene starts with Buffy on the ground. So right off, we have a cue that Buffy is not fighting at full strength. She and her friends follow the vampire that got away to a crypt. Inside, a group of vampires feeds on a human. Buffy looks worried and exchanges glances with her friends. We cut to them filing out of the graveyard. And normally, we'd assume that Buffy slayed all those vampires. But instead, Buffy says, A nest. No biggie. I bet I could do it. I know I could take at least two. And Anya responds, yes, and then we could run for help while the other three suck your heart out through your neck. Buffy agrees and says, you know who we need. There's an establishing shot of a mansion. Then inside, our four friends walk along a carpet up to an antique desk. There's a tall leather chair behind it with its back to them. And Buffy says, hi, we have a problem. The chair turns and Jonathan in a black turtleneck and black pants smiles and says, sounds like you could use my help. And we get spy music and then the credits. If you have not watched them in a while, go ahead and replay them. You get some short clips of Jonathan woven in among Buffy's friends. And it ends with Jonathan striding toward the camera, a long coat billowing out behind him, very Angel-esque. We return at 2 minutes 52 seconds into Giles' apartment. Buffy is practicing fighting moves, and so is Jonathan. He's using a crossbow. Willow's on her laptop. Xander draws a steak very dramatically and monologues about how the draw is about more than speed. It's a true test of dexterity. But then Anya asks him to open a milk carton and he says he can't. I tear it and it gets all sloshy. Something else I didn't notice until I watched Jane Espenson's commentary is that in the background, Anya is eating Johnny O's cereal and there's a photograph of Jonathan on the box. And the whole opening shows that we are starting in media res, in the middle of things. There's no explanation for the audience of why suddenly Buffy is asking for Jonathan's help. We are just plunged into this world. Giles is in the background reading a book, but it feels as if Giles' apartment is a more important place to me in this alternate universe. Buffy apologizes for bothering Jonathan, and he says, hey, don't worry about it. Nest full of vampires, you come get me? Okay. Box full of puppies, that's more of a judgment call. Buffy giggles like we've never heard her giggle before. They spar. Jonathan tells her to watch out for southpaws. Don't let him surprise you. Giles found nothing about any rituals. He says it looks like they interrupted more like a family meal. And Buffy quips, and they say no one eats without the TV on anymore. It's good to see she is still quipping, even though everything else is strange. Willow gets really excited. She found plans for the crypt online, but then she's disappointed. She sees only one entrance or exit to it. Buffy thinks maybe they can make it work. They could lure the vampires out. But Jonathan taps a few keys on the keyboard and finds a different way in. And Buffy looks almost disappointed. He tells Buffy she can go in first. Let them get a look at the Slayer. They're all armed. They're heading out the door. But Jonathan pauses before a chessboard that's clearly in the middle of a game. And he makes a move, leaving Giles flummoxed. And this is another example of small moments of world building. And Jane Aspenson said that she had so much fun with this. She made a list of all the things Jonathan was expert at and how to show them throughout the episode. And this is just this tiny moment where Jonathan, we've already seen that he is fighting with everyone, that they come to him. And now he makes this chess move and refers to this particular defense. And we see that Jonathan is better than Giles at. Chess. We're now moving toward our story spark or inciting incident. That is the event that usually comes about 10% through any story and it gets our main plot rolling. First, outside the crypt at 4 minutes 47 seconds in, Jonathan tells the others, Everyone, let's show these fiends that they came to the wrong town. Inside the crypt, Buffy shoots a crossbow and dusts one vampire. Jonathan crashes down through a skylight. I don't know why a crypt has a skylight, but we'll just go with it. With his crossbow, Buffy stakes another vampire. And there's fighting all around, but one vampire gets past Buffy and Jonathan shoots it with a crossbow. At 5 minutes 21 seconds in, Buffy says she should have gotten that one. And Jonathan tells her, but she got two of them and the second was ready for her. All that matters is she did her best. I have a note that his tone is condescending. In the commentary, Jane Aspinson said that Jonathan was encouraging but not condescending. But she said it shows that Buffy doesn't take initiative here in this world. She is an underling to Jonathan interesting that the writer had a different take on it. I I didn't read Jonathan as deliberately being condescending, but his tone felt that way to me. And I wonder if some of that is the difference of seeing it 20 plus years later, when as a culture, we have a greater recognition of gender dynamics in the workplace. Now we get what I see as the story spark because Buffy says, but that's just it. I don't think it was my best. Here she is recognizing that maybe she could be doing something more and it starts her thinking a that and why that is photographers wait outside the bushes as they file out of the graveyard and they take Jonathan's photograph because he is a celebrity in this world that's the first thing that makes that so clear now I guess everyone would be taking selfies and posting them on social media Jonathan though notices something else and he calls Spike out of the shadows and Spike says well well the man himself so now we know that them Vampires, too, see Jonathan differently, that the world has changed for them as well. Jonathan and Spike circle each other. Jonathan's acting very tough, but he warns Buffy to be careful. Spike is still Dangerous despite the chip. I took this as meaning that Jonathan was still in this world intimidated by some things, either certain men or by vampires. Or just by Spike. In the commentary, Espinson said that Jonathan makes even Spike feel important and relevant by warning about him being dangerous. I think that is the point of that, though I didn't necessarily consciously pick up on it. But through the episode, for almost everyone, Jonathan makes people feel good about themselves. And that is the very nature of charisma. It's something I remember reading about a presidential candidate and how good he made every person feel and how he put his full attention on each person and made them feel good. So I can see that here. Jonathan actually makes Spike feel good, feel like his old self. Spike refers to Wonder Jonathan and his fluffy battle kitten and calls Buffy Betty. Buffy says, it's Buffy, you big bleached stupid guy. And I have a note, Okay, maybe Buffy's quips aren't quite as good in this universe. At seven minutes, six seconds in, Willow and Tara talk as they are cutting and pasting things on a wall that we can't see because of the camera angle. Tara asks how Buffy's doing, and Willow says Buffy is not over the Riley sleeping with Faith thing, and then she clarifies Faith's insides and Buffy's outsides when her insides were out. And I should have quoted the exact line because I remember thinking it was just such a fun way to catch us up or remind us about what happened. During the last couple lines, the camera pans back and we see that Tara and Willow are cutting out photos of Jonathan and pasting them on the wall. Another great way to tell us so much about the world in just a couple seconds with a quick visual, plus Willow and Tara's actions. And this adds to that in media res idea. Britannica.com defines in media res as, quote, the practice of beginning an epic or other narrative by plunging into a crucial situation that is part of a related chain of events. The situation is an extension of previous events and will be developed in later action, close quote. And that is so much what we have for this episode, The events of it began before it. Whenever Jonathan did this spell and everything changed, we are plunged in the middle and we are seeing throughout these quick moments that tell us more and more about the world as well as the plot itself that is part of a chain of events. We cut to Riley and Buffy. He's tossing Nerf balls through a hoop in his room. He's shirtless, but Buffy is fully dressed, sitting on the bed, and she's asking how he's doing since his injury. Is he healing? And Riley says he's no Jonathan, but he's doing better. Their conversation is very awkward and stilted. It doesn't flow, and their body language shows their discomfort with each other. Buffy hopes Riley's not, quote, eating the initiative's technicolor food of strongness, close quote. Another great line to give us just some very quick exposition, Riley says he's not, and he's not sure if that means he'll get weaker or dumber or maybe smarter. He also says they've had no luck tracking Adam and goes on, if they just put a little trust in me, I know I could get the job done. And Buffy responds, I have felt that way my entire life. I find this fascinating because while Jonathan makes Spike feel more important, Xander seems much more confident in this episode. Buffy and Riley, who are two of the most powerful and competent people that we see in the season, Jonathan's effect on them is very different. they They feel that they are not living up to their potential. And that no one is willing to trust them enough to let them do what they know that they can do or they believe they can do. Riley sits next to Buffy, but she gets up and tosses a Nerf ball at the basket and misses and says you'd think she could do that, but she guesses it requires different muscles than beheading demons. Riley stands behind her and says she just needs a few pointers. She babbles on about if slaying were a competitive sport and then turns to face him and accidentally hits his midsection with the ball right where he was injured and he winces. And Buffy says, sorry, this just isn't my game. I gotta. And she turns and leaves. And as the door shuts, we see a poster of Jonathan playing pro basketball underneath that basketball net. So more world building more about jonathan's character the scene cuts to an outdoor coffee shop buffy is pouring tons of sugar into one of those large cups that's more like a bowl of coffee and she's telling someone who's facing her but we don't see that it's all faith's fault she's poison buffy stirs the cup and then hands it across the table to jonathan Jane Espenson commented that it was Sarah Michelle Gellar's idea to make the coffee and hand it to Jonathan. I love that because that is just wonderful character building. It tells us so much about Buffy's relationship to Jonathan in this world. Even the way she does it, you don't get the feeling that Jonathan said, hey, make my coffee. But she's just doing it like this is just normal. Of course, you would make Jonathan's coffee for him. Jonathan tells her he thinks Riley is the one Buffy is really angry at because Buffy had this amazing connection with him. Then at the moment that it matters most, Riley looks into her eyes and doesn't see that it's not Buffy looking back. Buffy's expression tells us this makes sense to her, but she says... There's no way he could know. I mean, you don't just look at someone and say, hey, that's not your body. Get out of that body with your hands up. Jonathan says she knows that, but she needs to believe it. And if she's still holding it against Riley, some part of her needs to forgive him. Earlier in their conversation, someone interrupted for an autograph. We're at almost 11 minutes in, and now another young woman approaches. She's odd that it's Jonathan Levinson in person. She's holding a copy of his autobiography. She gushes. She asks him to sign it for her, Karen with a K. And Buffy says maybe she has been blaming Riley, but how can she get past it? Jonathan says it won't be easy, but they're very special together and it's worth a little hard work. They get up to leave and Buffy says she's not sure how to make things work. Jonathan turns to look at her. At his back is a giant billboard of him and he says, if you really want it, you can make anything happen. At 12 minutes, 10 seconds in, we're inside the initiative. A colonel talks about the need to stop Adam and explains that they have brought in a tactical consultant, Mr. Levinson. Jonathan steps out dressed in camouflage. He says it's always bothered him that Adam doesn't eat. So he pulled Professor Walsh's schematic and discovered that Adam's power source is a small reservoir of uranium. It's hidden And it means that cutting off Adam's head is useless. They need to annihilate him completely. But first, they have to figure out where inside Adam that power source is. Next, a little bit late, we get what I think of as the one-quarter twist. That first major plot turn in any story that comes from outside the protagonist spins the story in a new direction and usually raises the stakes. So here at 13 minutes, 37 seconds in, outside Jonathan's mansion, Karen with a K is watching with binoculars wondering where Jonathan is and a giant monster attacks her. She runs and gets away. This monster and the fallout from it appearing will turn this story completely. And it definitely comes from outside Buffy and also from outside Jonathan, who has a very strong subplot here. But first, we cut to Jonathan and Riley. They are talking. Riley feels terrible. He doesn't know if Buffy will ever forget about Faith. Jonathan claims that Buffy is ready to, but she's scared that Riley will compare her to Faith, who is so much more experienced. The whole time they're talking, Jonathan's putting on a blindfold. And Riley says she knows she's the one I care about. Jonathan asks, have you let her know that? And Riley responds, I think I, haven't I? She has to know. And Jonathan says as he finishes tying that blindfold people can't always see what's right in front of them now he aims his gun there are three military guys in camouflage with apples on their heads lined up waiting for him to shoot the apples another example of something else jonathan is amazing at but also that everyone trusts jonathan If you are finding the story structure I talk about here helpful, you may want to download the free story structure worksheets. You can find those at the link in the show notes or on writingasasecondcareer.com. Look for the menu item Help with Your Story. have a question about whether there is any textual evidence for Jonathan's take on Buffy, that Buffy is afraid Riley is comparing her and Faith. There wasn't anything in his conversation with Buffy that suggests that, but if we look back at Buffy's history, her first time making love was with Angel. He turned on her afterwards, but one of the things he said when he was Angelus was to imply that the sex was not very good, to kind of make fun of her about it, and then Parker doesn't want to see her again after the first time they have sex. Now that's just Parker's M.O., but Buffy doesn't feel that way about it. So maybe Jonathan has picked up on something. Now Riley's comments definitely fit to me with the fact that he said, I love you, but it turned out it was to Faith, not Buffy. And that underscores uh, my view that that is the first time Riley said it. It's not just that we never saw him say that to Buffy he never did say it so now he's saying well does she know we switch to the bronze Xander's unhappy because Anya said Jonathan in bed last night she claims no it was a moan and and Xander says something like well fine it was Anathan Unlike the bronze in the world we're used to, here there is big band music playing. So another element of world building. Some of the patrons are dressed much fancier than usual. We see more suits. Jonathan takes the stage. He's in a tux with a white jacket. And he dedicates a song to friends of his, a very special couple going through a tough time. He sings. He's a great singer, kind of Frank Sinatra-like. Buffy and Riley dance, and she puts her head on his chest and her arms around him. And Riley says, Buffy, I want you to know. And Buffy looks up and says, do we have to have the talk? She half smiles and shakes her head. No talk. More dance. Gazing into his eyes. He tells her he only wants her. She says she knows that. And Riley says, you do? Since when? And Buffy responds, since you put your arms around me. Jane Espenson said she saw this as Jonathan's advice taking root. They are both now ready to talk, but they're so reassured by what Jonathan said to them that they don't need to, and they know what the other one is thinking without words. Jonathan takes out a trumpet and plays, and Tara is excited and comments about how it's from the new album. And Jane Espenson noted this implies there were lots of previous albums, Just that one line is another wonderful example of how you can do so much with a few words. Side note, if you like suspense and crime novels or mysteries, John Sanford's Lucas Davenport novels are amazing for this. He gets so much in, in one line, one detail of the setting, one line of dialogue. Karen with a K runs in, she's injured, she goes right past Buffy and toward Jonathan who stops the music and asks, what happened? I'm not sure of the timing of this because we saw the monster attack Karen before Jonathan was talking to Riley. So either uh, he got from there really fast to the bronze or Karen... Was running for a long time from the monster. Unclear. I don't really care because I enjoy the story so much. At 19 minutes in, Buffy, Riley, Jonathan, and Karen are at the mansion in front of the fireplace. Karen describes the demon and says it had a symbol on its forehead. Buffy and Riley exchange a look. He's got a small notepad and he immediately flips to a new page and hands it to Karen And Buffy looks over her shoulder as she draws. And I love how quickly these two react, how fast they pick up on this, and how eager they are to have something to do. Jonathan looks at the mark Karen draws, blinks a couple times, and says... It's not a demon, just a monster, more like an animal, and it sticks to the woods. Jane Aspenson pointed out that this is where it all starts to come apart. For the first time, Jonathan sees a negative consequence of his spell, and now Buffy must take initiative. And she does that. She points out that this time the monster came out of the woods, and it might again. She stands and says maybe they should patrol Riley eagerly says he can mobilize the squad. While this is a little bit before the midpoint of the episode, I feel like we are seeing here the midpoint commitment and reversal for the protagonist. Now, we don't always see both of those. You could see the protagonist commit fully to the quest or suffer a major reversal. Either one makes for a strong midpoint. Here we have both. And I think that works better because the commitment, Buffy isn't fully committed because she is in the moment discouraged by jonathan so she takes the initiative saying let's patrol You see it in her movements the fact that she stands up and says to jonathan let's patrol but jonathan says he'll patrol alone he can handle it so buffy has this reversal as does riley as they are both disappointed that they are not needed But as Jonathan walks Karen out, Buffy looks pensive, like she's sorting through something. And I do think this is where she is really actively starting to put pieces together or to feel strongly that there is something going on. We switch to Adam in an underground lair. He's in front of a bunch of computer screens. A vampire with him tells him there's something new in town. It attacked a girl. And then he points to Jonathan on these various TV screens and says, oh, he was there. The screens show uh, talk show interviews with Jonathan, Jonathan accepting awards. And the vampire thinks Adam is joking when he says he doesn't know who that guy is. This tells us a lot about what the larger world knows about Jonathan. This is not just Sunnydale that was changed. It is apparently everyone in the world. Adam now says these are all lies. None of it is real. The world has been changed. It's intriguing but wrong. Adam is the only one not under the spell And the vampire asks why, and Adam says, I'm aware. And he goes on to say no one else is as awake and alive as he is. Everyone else, they're just shadows. Jane Espenson commented she found Adam so chilling as a villain because he echoes human evil, that this is how sociopaths feel that no one is real but them. Adam goes on to say he doesn't need to do anything about Jonathan, and he says, These magics are unstable, corrosive. They will inevitably lead to chaos, and I am interested in chaos. And I feel like that is a little bit of foreshadowing. It gives us a bit of an explanation for why this powerful spell that affected the whole world is nonetheless not perfect. At 22 minutes 26 seconds in, Jonathan is staring into the fire. Two blondes look down from the stairwell above. They look identical. They're wearing identical lingerie. They have Swedish accents. And one of them asks, isn't he coming to bed? He tells him he'll be right there and he takes off his own robe and we see the symbol from the monster tattooed on his shoulder. So this tells us why that mark mattered so much and emphasizes how much of a reversal this monster appearing was for Jonathan. And that brings me to the question, who is the protagonist in this episode? Because clearly there are major plot turns for Jonathan, and some of them seem more dramatic, at least outwardly, than the ones for Buffy. You probably remember from previous episodes of the podcast, a protagonist should be actively pursuing a goal, be the main point of view character, and have the most at stake. So for most of this storyline, Jonathan doesn't actively pursue a goal. His actions, his most active actions, took place before the episode started when he did the spell. When we come into the show, he is pretty much just enjoying the fruits of his labor, the world that he's built. Then with the demon near the midpoint, he is reacting to the monster. Buffy, on the other hand, from the beginning is striving to do her job as a slayer. And in a regular episode, we wouldn't likely see that as enough of a goal for Buffy, because that is just what she always does. But here, It is a struggle for her, and she recognizes fairly early on that she isn't doing her best at it, and as we move to the midpoint, is trying to figure out why. So while that moment where she stands up and says, let's patrol together, let's find the monster, seems small, it's very big for Buffy in this episode, and it is Active as opposed to Jonathan reacting to things. We also mainly see the story through Buffy's point of view. We get a little bit from her friends. We get a bit more from Jonathan's eyes, but mainly we see the story through Buffy's eyes. Now, both of them have a lot at stake. For Jonathan, his whole world that he built is at stake, but Buffy... Will lose the real world and lose herself, which was also in peril in the previous Faith episodes. And I think that makes it even stronger and more difficult for her. So in the end, I see Buffy as our protagonist, and Jonathan is the antagonist pushing against her, despite that he doesn't directly want to hurt Buffy. So he's a really interesting antagonist in that his motives, while certainly not good motives, aren't directly meant to harm anyone. Obviously, he does a lot of harm, but he doesn't mean to. So he is a terrific example of a strong antagonist who doesn't see his aims as evil, but whose goal is mutually exclusive with Buffy's. If Jonathan wins... Buffy loses and vice versa, which makes this an extremely strong conflict. At 23 minutes, three seconds in, Willow, Buffy, and Tara walk at night on campus. Tara assumes Willow and Buffy need to go fight the monster, and Willow's ready, but Buffy tells them no. Jonathan said it's just a brainless beastie, and he would take care of it himself. And then she says that Jonathan seemed a little scared. Willow scoffs at that, it's Jonathan, and says, you know he doesn't get scared. You talked about it when you gave him the class protector award at The prom. So, more great world building. It also emphasizes what I just said about mutually exclusive goals. If Jonathan is the class protector, Buffy cannot be that. And Buffy cannot be who she truly is and who she's meant to be. It also tells us a lot about Jonathan, how much he admires Buffy, longed to be what Buffy is. And it fits with so much of this fantasy world of his involves being part of Buffy's circle, leading Buffy's circle. He could have been anywhere with anyone, and he chooses to be with the Slayer and her friends. Tara leaves them to go to her dorm. Willow and Buffy walk on and talk about Riley. We switch to Tara. Alone in the hallway at her dorm when the monster attacks, it knocks her to the floor and we cut to a commercial. A great hook and note that we also cut to a commercial during the monster's attack on Karen. It, it reared up in front of her, frightened her, and we cut to commercial and we came back to finish the attack. So we do the same thing here. And you could do that at a scene break or at a chapter break if you're writing a novel. Tara is on the floor. She's crab crawling away from the monster. So she's facing it and backing away. And she says a spell. She's breathless, but she gets it out and smoke comes out of her fingers into the monster's eyes, partially blinding it. is able to get away and lock herself in a janitor's closet. It has a very sturdy door. The monster flails at it. He's not that smart. He doesn't try the doorknob. He's also not able to break it down. And Jane Espenson commented that, though we'll find out the monster is the worst of everything, he can't get through a wooden door. And she says, oh, well... Again, it's something I'm willing to go with because I enjoy this story so much, but it is a bit of a plot problem. I also think it works though because the monster is not the true antagonist here. The monster is Jonathan. Buffy in the next scene goes to Willows. Tara's lying on the bed. She has cuts on her forehead. She's shivering. Tara describes the monster, mentions the symbol on its head. Buffy draws it from memory and Tara says, yes, that's it. A nice example of how Buffy is not only super strong, she is smart. Throughout this episode... Buffy is relying not on her physical strength, but on her intelligence on putting things together that other people are either not sensing or not seeing or not able to add up into anything meaningful, but Buffy does. Willow is very upset. She says, Buffy, Jonathan said we were all safe. Jonathan said it. On that last line, we fade to Buffy walking. There's a giant Jonathan billboard in the background, or multiple billboards, and we know that she is thinking about this. The scene cuts to Anya. She opens the door to Buffy and says, Xander's not here. Buffy stands there, and Anya says, You're not going away. Why aren't you going away? Buffy says she wants to look at some of Xander's stuff. He's got Jonathan trading cards, other Jonathan paraphernalia. Anya is reading Jonathan's autobiography as Buffy looks through Xander's things. And she looks up and says, oh, you're still here? That's nice. Buffy asks Anya, doesn't it seem strange that Jonathan's so good at everything? He fights better than Buffy, and she's the slayer. That ought to mean something, right? And Anya says, oh, and she nods and smiles. Buck up, you. You killed the best. Go, you. Kill, kill. Buffy responds, actually not needing validation right now, but thank you. If you know someone who loves Buffy the Vampire Slayer but doesn't listen to podcasts, or if you would simply like to revisit season one of Buffy in writing rather than re listening to the podcast, you can get Buffy and the Art of Story season one Writing Better Fiction by Watching Buffy in print or in ebook editions. I also have available the first part of season two in book form, and there is all the content from the podcast just edited to be a little more polished and shinier, so you can relive the episodes that way. The books also include topics at the beginning of each episode so that you can flip to the ones that you might find most helpful if, for instance, you want to read all the things about subplots or everything about character arcs. And there are questions at the end of each episode to guide you in applying what you learned from it to your own writing. You can find those Buffy in the Art of Story books at lisalilly.com slash Buffy books or search on your favorite ebook or print book retailer. And I love that Anya, though she is mistaken about Buffy's motives right there, is picking up on something that might bother Buffy. And she is trying to do the human thing, the friendship thing in supporting Buffy. Buffy goes on that Jonathan seems too perfect and asks if when Anya was a demon, she granted wishes that changed the world. Anya says, sure, alternate realities. You could have a world without shrimp or one with only shrimp or even a freaky world where Jonathan's some sort of, quote, not perfect mouth breather, close quote, if that's what you want. But she goes on, just don't ask me to live there. It's not clear here whether Anya remembers the wish Where Cordelia wished Buffy never came to Sunnydale. I think that she must. After all, she is no longer a vengeance demon. She lost her powers. And she'll say at different times it's because of Cordelia or because of Xander cheating on Cordelia. It's odd that she doesn't reference that, and I can only think that she's never told the others the extent of that alternate world. In the next scene, at 28 minutes, 55 seconds in, we start with a shot of Riley. He is listening to Buffy. We pan back, everyone's in Giles' apartment. And Buffy's explaining her concerns about Jonathan, including that he starred in The Matrix but never left town. And how did he graduate from med school? He's only 18 years old. And Sanders says, effective time management. Giles doesn't understand what she's trying to say. Anya asks when Jonathan will get there and start the meeting and Buffy says this is the meeting and Willow says this is the meeting I mentioned uh, in a previous episode that I'm trying to look more at the dialogue and we see the writers use repetition really well and here we've got the same four words said but with such different intonation Buffy now raises the question of Jonathan being too perfect. And Xander says, no, he's not. He's just perfect enough. He runs through some of the things Jonathan did, some of which were Buffy's, like crushing the master's bones and blowing up the big snake Mayor, And they saw it all happen. And Buffy questions that. Can they trust their memories? Did they see it? She asks Anya to explain alternate realities. But Anya says, say you really like shrimp a lot. Or we could say you don't like shrimp at all. Blah, I wish there weren't any shrimp you'd say to yourself. Giles and Willow look really puzzled and Buffy says, stop, you're saying it wrong. She tells them she thinks Jonathan is doing something to manipulate the world and they are all his pawns, Anya says, or prawns. And Buffy responds, stop with the shrimp. I am trying to do something here. Giles thinks Buffy's a little out of her depth. And then Riley says it sounds like nonsense, and Buffy looks shocked, but he goes on and stands next to her and says that he's starting to know, quote, this girl pretty well, and I think she sees things that the rest of us don't. I think for once we should follow her lead, close quote. And my note, as as I was watching for the podcast, was that a woman says it and no one listens. A man says it and now they do. And I wondered if the writers did that on purpose. In the commentary, though, Jane Espenson said, this is why Riley is so great for Buffy. He supports her even though she's stronger and that it's easy to be supportive when you are stronger than your partner, but harder if it's the other way around. An interesting take on the Buffy-Riley relationship. As far as my question about male-female dynamics in the workplace, the fact that Espenson never mentions that, although, as I'll talk about toward the end, one of the themes she pinpoints does go to that, I think reflects that in some ways they are working this in, but it's not necessarily conscious commentary. But it is an example for good or bad, and we'll see a bad example later, what is going on in the larger culture weaves into stories, whether we are aware of it or not. Now that Riley has vouched for her, Buffy says Jonathan might be ignoring evidence and that he let Tara get hurt, though not on purpose. She tells them about the mark on the monster and that Jonathan saw it and kind of blinked. Xander can't believe they're having a meeting because Jonathan blinked. But Buffy remembers something else and asks Giles if he has a Jonathan swimsuit calendar. Giles says no, but Buffy gives him a look and he admits that yes, but he claims it was a gift. And I love that they are still so close. All it takes is Buffy giving Giles this look and he caves. Buffy pages through the calendar saying no, no, oh, and then there. So this is the three-quarter turn, the last major plot turn, that grows from the midpoint and takes the story in yet another new direction. And here it grows from that moment when Buffy stood up and said, the monster came out of the woods, let's patrol. And the reversal when Jonathan said, no, no, it'll be fine. The mark of the monster is on Jonathan's shoulder Riley wonders how Jonathan could have that same mark. Buffy doesn't know, but says, quote, he's definitely keeping something. And Jonathan interrupts them. He's walked in behind them without them knowing it and says, is this a private conversation or can Mr. July sit in? Anya says, hi, Buffy was just saying how you had a monster cut up Willow's friend. Buffy glares at her. Anya looks back, confused, and mouths, What? Espenson commented on how Anya blurts out things and doesn't censor herself. And that is very useful in a character because it moves the story along. Jonathan says Buffy and Buffy says no, but she walks past him and shuts the door behind him, then turns and faces him. So again, this fairly subtle move by Buffy, like her standing up, she is taking control. She shuts the door behind him, faces him and says, it's just the mark. You said it was safe and it wasn't. I'm sorry. I just don't understand. And now she goes back to a little more of a subservient position, joins the group as they all look at Jonathan. Her, I'm sorry, I just don't understand. I have a note how we have to talk to men sometimes. My workplace experience where that happened to me was a decade ago. I hope that perhaps this is not the case for any genders in the workplace anymore. But at the time this was written, it definitely was. Jonathan says he'll explain. And the others eagerly sit down to listen. Jonathan says, Buffy is right. Buffy looks shocked he admitted it, but Willow and Xander look shocked overall, and Jonathan claims he has a history with a monster, and when he faces it, his mind becomes confused. He agrees with Xander that the monster might be like his kryptonite, and says it's why he had the mark tattooed on himself. Riley is satisfied. That explains everything. Xander and Willow are reassured, and Willow says that whole alternate universe thing was too freaky. But Buffy stands again, so another small action, and faces Jonathan and proposes that the two of them go after the monster right now. Jonathan looks more nervous and says, he's sure it's left town. That's its pattern. And Buffy says, we can try. And Jonathan says, sure. And his lip trembles a bit. And he says, let's do that. At 33 minutes, 47 seconds in, Buffy and Jonathan run into Spike in the graveyard. He caresses Buffy's face, says someday he'd love to take her on, see her face the evil alone for once without Jonathan. Jonathan shoves him away, asks him about the monster, and Spike claims to know nothing, but adds that he's probably lying. Jonathan tells Buffy they're not getting anything out of Spike and is about to leave. But Buffy grabs Spike and shoves him against the crypt. And in the commentary, Jane Espenson noted that this is the first time Buffy takes physical action. And it is a huge moment for her. And Spike says, hey, what are you doing? You're not supposed to do that. Buffy tells him the butchers in this town know and like Jonathan. And Spike will find his blood supply drying up if he doesn't talk. He sighs, tells them some vampires got kicked out of a cave in the hills. The monster might be there. As they walk off together, Jonathan says, that was very good. Very good. Very good. He is not totally happy, but Buffy smiles. She's delighted. At 35 minutes, 38 seconds in back in Giles' apartment, Riley marvels at the spells in the books and asks if they really work. Willow tells him yes, but they require concentration, being attuned to the elements, and Xander says, right, you can't just go libram Incendere and expect, and flames burst from the open book in his hand, and Giles says, Xander... Don't speak Latin in front of the books. Willow finds the mark. It is part of an augmentation spell. Jonathan made himself the best of everything, affecting how they see him. He's everyone's ideal, but there's a drawback. To balance the force of good, the spell needed to create the opposite, the worst of everything. Xander says, so we're saying he did a spell just to make us think he was cool? That is so cool. Giles says the creature is linked to Jonathan. If it dies, Jonathan reverts to whatever he was before. And Anya says Jonathan isn't going to want Buffy to get very far so this is a nice way to tell us how much danger Buffy is in in the cave Buffy and Jonathan step near the edge of a long drop and Buffy says something about fall down there and be dead for a while Jonathan agrees they don't want that to happen but it looks like he's thinking about pushing Buffy in he closes his hand around her wrist but at the last second pulls her back from the brink the monster attacks We go back to Giles' apartment, and Willow says, Buffy was right. Buffy was right. Anya responds, doesn't sound very likely, does it? Riley asks what the real world is like. Willow is scared everything will change, but Giles says everything will stay pretty much the same, but, quote, Jonathan won't be Jonathan, not our Jonathan anyway, close quote. And Xander responds, no, no, no. World without sunshine, world without joy. Riley points out everything only changes back if Buffy kills the creature. If not, they could be stuck in this wrong world forever. And Xander says, things looking up. I mean, we're all happy here, right? You know, if she doesn't get killed. Willow worries that Buffy can't kill the creature, and Giles doesn't know if she can and says she's never stood alone against something like this before. And Jane Espenson said this is one alternative to creating ever more powerful demons to put Buffy in peril. Here she's in peril because the world has changed. This is a great setup for the climax, which we are now reaching, that is where our opposing forces have their final confrontation and resolve the main conflict. There's more fighting. Jonathan is um, on the ground, off to one side. The monster kicks Buffy away. Jonathan recovers and grabs it, but he's struggling with it, and Buffy says, Jonathan, what do I do? He tells her he thinks she'll have to handle this one solo. She asks him how, and he says, you'll know. You, you Used to and the more you hurt it the more I'll lose my the monster breaks away Jonathan falls back and Buffy needs to fight as Jonathan hides behind the rocks Buffy punches kicks with each blow she appears more sure of herself and stronger and she says I remember this this is good I like this because while often Buffy struggles with being the slayer because she wants a normal life we see that she also loves being powerful Being able to fight monsters and do good in this way. Jonathan comes out once in a while when Buffy falters. But she gets the upper hand again and he dives back into hiding. Then the monster shoves her so near that cliff edge, she just stops herself from going in. Jonathan runs out to help. He runs into the monster, shoving it over the cliff. He goes over too, but Buffy grabs his ankle and keeps him from falling. He's hanging completely upside down. And I love this because they both got to be heroic and save the day. However, Jonathan, our antagonist, does lose in the sense that Buffy prevailed. She has put the world back to where it should be. And, and he did help do that. So in that sense, he has a turn for the better personally, but he still lost that major confrontation. We're now in the falling action where the story should tie up loose ends and resolve any subplots. In downtown Sunnydale, there are flashing lights as Jonathan billboards and posters disappear, and everything goes back to normal. We see a closed for repairs sign on the theater which I feel is a subtle way to signal that not everything is better. We also see a Dingo's Ate My Baby poster revealed that's Oz's band and he is gone now. So again, props and setting tell us everything we need to know. The world is going back to what it was. We switch to on campus in the daytime. Our friends sit under the tree... Willow and Riley talk about how real it all seemed. And Xander says, I'll always remember the way he made me feel about me, valued and respected. So going to that idea of charisma again, being about making other people feel good. But Riley asks if anyone else felt way too tall. Which I enjoy because, one, it's literal. Jonathan is shorter than average. Riley is taller than average. So it makes sense in the world where Jonathan is the best of everything, everyone else who is taller would feel too tall and Riley especially would. But I also see it as metaphorical, that idea that while Xander felt better, Riley felt out of place. Sander talks about Jonathan's cool clothes, and the others ask who really starred in The Matrix. So it is a gradual returning to the world. Buffy sees Jonathan across the way. He's looking at her. He's in one of his classic striped two-big t-shirts. His hair is in bangs, and he does look so different than when he was in those suits with his hair styled. Buffy joins him. He says he wasn't sure she'd come over, that everyone's mostly forgetting, but some of them are angry no one's talking to him and the twins moved out absent this line I think in my head and even when I remember the episode I tend to think of them almost like the mansion like I imagine the spell created the mansion created the twins rather than them being two young women who were part of Jonathan's world otherwise and because of these changes moved in with him and had sex with him. Jane Espenson did not mention that, which makes me think that that was totally under the radar for the writers, that that was rape. Jonathan, just as if he had given them drugs, And that's my example when I said, uh, for better or worse, when you write, you are absorbing the culture around you and it filters into fiction and here, that attitude, both that it's okay to play this for a joke and not taking seriously, altering someone's mind, whether it's through drugs or alcohol or any other way in the Buffy world spells, To have sex with them, it's not presented as any more of a violation or any more serious than the other things that Jonathan changed and did. Buffy says to Jonathan, Why did you do it anyway? No, I get why. How? He tells her that after the bell tower and the gun, he went to group counseling. There were lots of kids with problems, and one of them had this spell, and he glossed right over the monster. He goes on that he just wanted to apologize to Buffy. No one was supposed to get hurt. And Buffy points out that it wasn't just the monster, quote, people didn't like being the little actors in your sock puppet theater. And Jonathan responds, but you weren't. You weren't socks. You were friends. She tells him he can't keep trying to make things work out with a big gesture all at once. Things are complicated. They take time and work. Jonathan nods, turns away, but then he turns back and reminds her that he gave her advice about Riley. It's all starting to blur for him too, but he thinks it was similar to what she just said to him about things taking work. And Jonathan says, what you have is really complicated, but it's worth it. And we cut to Buffy and Riley sitting on the bed together and kissing. Buffy pauses and says, I'm glad we talked this all out. Riley responds, we haven't talked at all and Buffy says oh well whatever we're doing we're doing it great he kisses her and after a few seconds she says mmm Jonathan he draws back and she smiles and we cut to credits Jane Aspenson said a couple things about theme here one was that it took an episode in a strange universe for Buffy and Riley to get through this difficulty so that's one of the other ways she saw this as fitting in the season arc. Espenson also said that she saw the theme of the episode as being that when someone is around who's accepted as the authority, the coolest guy in the room, it affects everyone and they tend to step back and not blossom themselves. And that's what I think we are seeing with Buffy and Riley. They are in the shadow of Jonathan. Since both of them are that way, I guess that this is not a commentary on gender, but I do still think it works that way. And it's part of why this episode resonates so much with me. I do have a few more things in spoilers and foreshadowing, so I hope you will stick around for that section. Either way, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll come back for the next episode in two weeks where the wild things are, where Buffy and Riley can't stay out of bed, and once again, a frat house is not a good place to be. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It will help other Buffy fans find Buffy in the art of story. You can also comment on and share podcast episodes on social media, tell a friend about the podcast, or support the podcast on Patreon. Check the link in the show notes or go to lisalily.com slash patreon. You'll also get access to bonus content as a patron. In a recent episode, I explored whether the initiative as a whole might be the Season 4 antagonist with the Scooby gang as a group being the protagonist. That's lisalily.com Patreon, or you can go to Patreon's website, Patreon patreon.com slash Lisa M. Lily, that's L-I-S-A, M is in Marie, L I double l y and we are back for spoilers and foreshadowing riley's mention of not eating the initiative food and that he's not sure if it'll make him weaker or dumber or maybe smarter we will see these effects ripple through to season five there he struggles with not being strong anymore. And some of what the initiative did to him is still affecting his body, giving him super strength, but his heart starts to give out and he wants that super strength so much that even though it's killing him, he does not want to get help. And he struggles with why Buffy would want to be with him if he's not strong anymore. So whatever Jane Espenson saw here and how supportive Riley's able to be, though Buffy is stronger than him, does seem to deteriorate, perhaps because of what the initiative did to him. But we'll talk about that more in season five. The other moment that does advance the season arc Jane Espenson commented on it, which is Jonathan discovering that Adam has a uranium power source. And Espenson said she came up with this at the time. It was just to have something that the military didn't already know about Adam for Jonathan to tell them. But it turned out that that becomes key in the finale of the season where Buffy pulls out that uranium core. Going back to Jane Espenson's comment about how Buffy and Riley don't need to talk, that they have reached this understanding because of Jonathan, I find that really interesting because, to me, one of Buffy and Riley's issues in the future is that they don't talk. Probably more an issue on Buffy's side. She doesn't tell Riley what's going on with Dawn, which I do sort of understand. We'll talk about more at the time. She also keeps him at something of a distance when her mom is in the hospital. Another thing I understand, but Riley, it makes him feel shut out. And then when she tells him, he says, she's so strong, she never even cried. And she says, oh, I cried. And it's clear to him, okay, she is crying alone. She's not leaning on him. And he feels shut out. He feels not needed. And it seems like there is so much that these two don't talk about. Then Riley doesn't share how he feels about that. He doesn't talk to Buffy about it. Instead, he goes off. He gets involved with these this vampire group that bites humans. All of these things are about Buffy and Riley not talking. So it's interesting that in this episode, I see that as foreshadowing. The fact that Buffy and Riley never really talk about the faith issue is part of the problem. It sets them on this road of not talking through things. But Espenson saw it as they did really work it through. Anya's world without shrimp is mentioned again in Triangle, where Anya and Willow ultimately send this troll that's causing all this destruction away. And they don't know where they sent it, but Anya says, maybe to the world without shrimp. Minor spoiler for Angel, the character Illyria in the last season talks about having been able to travel through multiple worlds or universes and says, including one that only had shrimp. And I love that there is a callback. I do not think Jane Espenson wrote that episode. I should look. Maybe she did. But I I love that there's that reference that only Buffy fans would get. Jonathan, of course, tons of foreshadowing for him. We see so much about how he feels about Buffy here that will carry through to season six when he's part of this trio that sets themselves up as Buffy's nemesis, and yet he does admire Buffy. He continues to, and he continues in season six to be grateful to her for the time she saved him. He genuinely encourages Buffy when she is fighting the monster, telling her she can do it. She used to know how. He could have pushed her over that cliff and kept his world, maybe not forever, because Adam has told us these magics will tend to chaos, but he could have kept it a little longer. And later in season six, he is the one of the trio who is not wanting to hurt Buffy. It also goes to Jonathan's failing to grasp the implications of his actions or maybe choosing not to grasp them. He wants to be admired. He wants power. And he somehow thinks he can do it without hurting hurting other people even though he does it through spells and underhanded ways and that is part of season six too he is really in denial about what he's doing as if somehow they can be these arch villains and yet not really hurt anyone so we will see a lot of that in season six for jonathan and finally of course the major foreshadowing this episode does is that the world can be altered through a spell, that everything can be changed, everyone's memories, which foreshadows dawn, and that the monks will alter the world. And they are so much better at it, so much stronger than Jonathan, that their altered world sticks. And we also foreshadow that Buffy will be the only one who senses something wrong. No, she doesn't know until she does her own spell that the world has been altered and that Dawn does not belong there. But of all the characters, she is the one who feels most acutely that difference in the world. She has such a hard time with suddenly having a little sister, even though in in her mind, Dawn has always been there. And we see that in this episode too. In this universe, Buffy has always been Jonathan's underling, yet it does not feel right to her. So in some ways, Adam is wrong that he's the only one not affected. Buffy, though affected is able to ultimately see past the spell when no one else does. So that is it for this episode. Thank you again for listening. And I do hope you'll come back next time for Where the Wild Things Are, where a frat house party goes very wrong, partly because of Riley and Buffy and Spike and Anya interact with one another. Remember, you can find the show notes and back episodes of Buffy and the Art of Story at lisalilly.comslash slash buffystory. You can find the book editions of Buffy and the Art of Story at lisalilly.comslash Buffy Books. And if you like supernatural thrillers or female private eye mysteries with smart, determined female protagonists, you can check out the first in each of my series free at lisalily.com free. Music for this episode was written and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman, LLC. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved.